Well, good morning, church. It's always great to see you, always great to be with you and to worship with you. I hope you're doing well. Worship was fantastic this morning, wasn't it? Amen. Hey, let me say with Kayla, welcome to our guest, to all of you joining online. We are honored to have you with us. And I want to add one thing. So if this is your first time with us, can I do a special invitation to get you back next Sunday? Next Sunday is going to be a special day. Of course, it's Father's Day. Ladies, don't forget it's Father's Day, okay? This is the number one day of the year for you. So Father's Day. So Pastor Joel, Joel Oates, our lead pastor who is out today, he has an incredible message. I've already had a sneak preview, so I can say that in good faith. Also, Denise Kimbrough, our events coordinator, has some really fun and cool things planned for dads. And so trust me, you do not want to miss next Sunday. It is going to be a lot of fun. This morning, we are continuing our summer series called Stories Around the Campfire. Last week, Pastor Joel kicked it off, and we're looking at various parables of Jesus. Of course, if you know the Bible at all, you know that Jesus often taught in parables. And Pastor Joel talked about why he did that, and one of the reasons was for clarity, clarity for his disciples. Jesus would take something that they were readily familiar with in the natural world, and he would use that to reveal a deep deeper spiritual truth. I heard someone say it this way, parables are earthly stories, but with heavenly meanings. And so there's always rich meaning and depth in every one of these parables that Jesus taught. And so this morning, we're going to look at probably one of the most well-known, certainly one of the most beloved, the parable of the lost sheep. It's a beautiful story. It's a simple message. I'm here to encourage us today with the message behind this parable. You know, I find it really interesting that it seems that for every human characteristic, for every personality trait, there seems to be an opposite. Have you notice that? It's God's creative design, I suppose. Like for instance, some of you were early to church today, and others of you were not, <laughs> right? Now, the funny thing is, Whatever side of that fence you fall on, it doesn't really change, right? Those of you who were, who were early, you were early last week and the week before that. Those of you who were not, were not last week. Or, and by the way, as staff pastors, we know who you are. <laughs> you need to know that. We keep up with it. I'm kidding. Some of us are quiet and reserved by nature. Others, like Pastor Joel, are not, right? Some of us believe in long personal space. Others are in our face. Some like chocolate. Others like vanilla. And then there are those of us who don't care. Just bring the ice cream. Amen? I'm in that camp. There's one that really doesn't make sense to me. I'm on one side of the fence. I am convinced it's the right side. And it's those of us who... Believe there is a place for everything, and everything should be in its place, and you never lose anything. Where are my people? Come on, let me see where you Look around, folks. These are the people that are running the world, all right? At least they know where the world is. You're my tribe. You're my people. But there are other people on the other side of the fence that it's as if you lose stuff all the time. You live under this constant question of, now where did I put that? All right, the funny thing is, and you know this if you're married, God has this remarkable sense of humor. He often partners us and pairs us with someone opposite. Amen? I'm in the tribe of, again, 
a place for everything. I, I honestly, I'm 52 years old. I have lost very few things in my lifetime. I'm just sort of OCD that way. I'm married to someone, sweet as can be. This is the only flaw, if you consider it a flaw, who's in the other camp. Let me see Leslie's people. Where are you? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I know there are more of you. You just don't want to admit it. That's okay. Just for fun, how many of you had to look for your car keys this morning? Ah, uh, okay. A couple of hands, not many. That's a good Sunday. That's great. How about cell phone? Anybody had to find the cell phone before you left the house? There, more hands, more hands. Can I ask, what is wrong with you people? I mean, why do you live that way? It, l listen, on behalf of my tribe, come to our side. There is room. We invite you. There's so much joy and peace awaiting you. I promise you. Now, I know that's not successful. I've been selling that pitch for decades now. And we are just built the way we are built. Now, thank God, again, if you know Leslie at all, she is nearly perfect, seriously. And so that, that may be the only thing I can tease her about. And she's not here. She's in Louisiana with family, and so she'll be watching this. And I do have to be careful this morning. But There are some who lose everything, others who never lose anything. You know, I suppose the worst experience of loss, well, that's not true. One of the terrible things that you can lose, especially young parents, is when you're in public and one of your children wanders off. Anybody has suffered that traumatic experience? Oh, my goodness, the adrenaline rush, the panic that comes over you. Nothing in the world matters except that child at that moment, right? That is a terrible experience. I asked Leslie for examples. I couldn't really remember any specific stories about when that happened with our children and she couldn't remember any either. There, there were one, some that would hide in the clothes racks at the department stores, right, and, until we finally beat them hard enough that they never did it again because it's like, <laughs> I scratched that from the video. I'm just kidding. But I, I wasn't kidding in my mind. I wanted to, right? They're like, don't do that to us. Well, if you know Leslie, you also know that she is what I call the dog whisperer. She loves her some dogs. She has an incredible giant heart for lost and abandoned and neglected and abused dogs. And she has rescued and rehabbed and saved dozens over the years. I'm not exaggerating. We may be eclipsing the hundreds mark at this point. And if not, we will one day. It will not stop. I know that. She loves them. And so with all of those dogs, she could remember some stories about lost dogs or losing some dogs and one such story is about a dog named Ethel. Ethel, real name. Cute little terrier. The whole family loved this little dog. One day it wandered off. It was lost, or so Leslie thought. Poor Leslie. Her heart was broken immediately. She's panicked. It's just like losing a child to her. And so she searches frantically. She searches exhaustively. She refuses to give up. She is going to find and rescue this poor dog. She can't imagine how distraught the dog must be, right? In her mind, the dog is looking for her as frantically and exhaustively as Leslie is looking for the dog. Well, finally, Ethel is found safe and sound. In fact, cool as a cucumber, not a care in the world. I have a picture to show you where Ethel was found. And in case you can't see her, here's zoomed in. You see the worry on Ethel's face. Ethel was not lost. She was safe. 
Well, our parable this morning, in one sense, is about a lost animal. Look with me at Luke chapter 15, the first seven verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, not a word we use very often, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is a fascinating, although not uncommon, scene with Jesus. Jesus, of course, this massive religious leader, often found himself at odds with the religious leaders of his day. And then the the people that you would think would naturally shy away, they would avoid, they would steer clear of this incredible religious leader, they were found often gathered around Jesus. I heard one preacher say this, this phenomenon about Jesus was that people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And then the beautiful part is that Jesus liked them back. Now this isn't the message, this is just a bonus I'm throwing in for free this morning. But I think there is a challenge to the church in that simple truth right there. The fact that people nothing like him liked him and he liked them back, I think that's a message for the church. Listen, we, you and I, believers, we are called ambassadors of Christ in the Bible. Meaning we are representing him on earth. It seems to me that we see that about Jesus in so many stories. And if we are representing Him, then, then we ought to be living more Christ-like every day. And this world that He's called us to reach, that doesn't agree with us, that may not agree with our values, somehow, some way, if we are Christ-like, they should like us. They should be drawn to us. We have the message of hope, right? We have the greatest news that the world has ever known. And so we ought to be living in a way... Now, I don't say this necessarily individually because I can speak for myself. I'm not good enough to pull this off all of the time. But as the church, the capital C church, corporately, collectively, I think we ought to be living in that respect, that this lost world is drawn. It's the salt and light from the the Bible, right? We are to attract others to us. We, We are to make them thirsty for the message that we have. I'm not sure how well we are doing in that regard. Help us, Lord. Help Help me, Lord. And so in verse 1, Luke says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. These were the most maligned groups in the Jewish society of that day. Tax collectors were Jewish traitors. They were Jewish, Jewish people, Jewish citizens, but they were working for the Roman Empire. And the Roman authorities, oftentimes they would auction off regions of of the community, of the country. And they would have these tax collectors and they would say, this is what you owe Rome. Anything you collect above that is yours to keep. Well, you can imagine these unscrupulous tax collectors would immediately see that as a way to get filthy rich. And many of them did on the backs of their people, the Jewish people. And so they were despised. They were hated. They were the lowest of the low. And then you have the sinners. Sinners didn't want to be 
lumped in with the tax collectors. No one wanted to be considered that low. But they were looked down upon because they were not living according to the hundreds of laws and guidelines and principles and rules that the Pharisees would pass down and teach and enforce. And they were not part of the temple community. In fact, they were barred from the temple. And so Jesus is surrounded by these despised groups of people. And then Luke tells us in verse 2 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The religious elite did not like the way Jesus behaved around these groups of people. They were considered unclean by these religious leaders. They would have referred to them as people of the land, referring to themselves as people of the law. And people of the law do not, must not, cannot associate with people of the land. And certainly, the last thing you ever want to do is to share a meal with the people of the land, these who could not even go into Jewish synagogues. They were the outcast. The oral tradition of the Jewish law would have taught that anyone that would eat with someone from those people groups would themselves become defiled. If you eat with a defiled person, you become defiled. We know Jesus walked this earth and lived a sinless life, but the Pharisees watching him, how he lived, watching him dine with these groups of people, would have considered Jesus defiled, that he in fact was sinning by doing that. To drive that home further, here's a saying that the Pharisees had about these groups of people. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That's what the Pharisees thought of these people. Compare that with what Jesus said. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one who repents. I thank God for a church that embraces Jesus' saying over that of the Pharisees. Amen? I thank God for a pastor and Pastor Joel who reminds us often that everyone is welcome at real life church. Sinners, yes, get yourself here. Lost people, absolutely come. Those who messed up last night, Yes, get here. You're welcome here. You're not tolerated. You're not a project. You are welcome in this house. And if that makes you uncomfortable as it has me before, can I just challenge you to ask God to break your heart for what breaks His? Because He loves lost people. And I thank God that His love was not predicated on me cleaning up myself before He loved me. He's eating with these groups of people, the most maligned groups in all of Israel. He did not ask them or expect them to be like Him, to be Christ-like before He was giving His love to them. I'm thankful for that was true in my own life. He invites us to come as we are. And then it's after that. It's after we come. It's after we surrender. It's after we give our lives to Him that His work in us begins to remake us and reshape us and to cast the old things as never was and to make all things new. The church always has to resist a religious spirit. I think it's because the enemy knows that for most of us, he'll never trip us up with some gross, ugly sin or this ungodly, heinous lifestyle. That happens more often than any of us would like to admit. But for many of us, the enemy knows that that's not what's going to take us out. And so I think one of the greatest things he uses to hinder God's church is to tempt us with a religious spirit. Maybe he won't be able to turn Roy into a mass murderer, 
a blight of society, but if he can get me to look down my nose at the lost, then the church loses and he wins with a religious spirit because we can't do the work of the church unless we are willing to have relationships with the lost. We will never be able to reach anyone at arm's length. We must pull them close to us. And so the Pharisees are muttering about Jesus hanging out with these groups of people. They don't like it. It doesn't look good. He's one of them. He's a rabbi. What is he thinking? Does he not know what our law says? And Jesus, being Jesus, knows exactly what they're thinking, exactly what they're grumbling about. And so he shares this parable in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine and go look for the one until he's found? He asks it in a rhetorical fashion. Like, doesn't this make sense? Isn't this common sense? And isn't it obvious? Wouldn't you leave the 99 and go look for the one? And he says, until. I tried to define the word until. Until is one of those fascinating words that you, it's almost impossible to define it without using it. What, what is, how long is until? It's un, until, right? Remember, earthly story, heavenly meaning. Jesus is saying, I'll leave the 99. I'll go after the one until. There's no expiration date. There's no day on the calendar after which I'm saying, enough. I'm no longer searching. I'm no longer pursuing. No, Jesus says, I'm going until. In the late 1800s, Francis Thompson, some of you, if you're literary fans, you may know that name right away. He wrote the poem, The Hound of Heaven. Francis, as a young man, was a medical student. He became hooked on drugs, ultimately dropped out of med school and lived a horrible life as a drug addict, sunk so low that he attempted suicide. Somehow he, he survived that attempt. Ultimately, somehow he was found and he gave his life to Christ and he ultimately lived a good life for God and did great things. And he wrote this poem about his journey of running from God but all the while God pursuing him. It's a long poem. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to read just a couple of lines from it. Francis Thompson, the hound of heaven, writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. And then he writes this about God's pursuit. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. I love that. It's a picture of Jesus' pursuit until unhurriedly, patient, never frustrated, never aggravated, never perturbed, just relentless, just persistent, just pursuing, just pursuing until. I want to encourage a parent in the room. You have a wayward child? They haven't yet returned? Can I encourage you to believe and to trust that you're simply on this side of until? Can I just challenge you to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep praying, to keep believing, to keep trusting, to keep loving that child, believing until, to have until faith, to not give up, to believe that as Jesus shared in this parable, that he is pursuing until he is found. Now look what happens after the search is completed in verse 5. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. I love that picture. But I also love what I don't read. I also love what he doesn't do. The shepherd, after this until search, 
doesn't scold the sheep. Luke's gospel doesn't tell us why the sheep is lost, but Matthew tells a parallel account in his gospel, and in it he says the sheep wandered away. The sheep is lost because the sheep, not to the, the neglect of the shepherd, the shepherd didn't somehow turn his back and the sheep got away. No, the sheep just wandered. And sheep are known to do that. They'll let their appetites lead them to lost. Sounds like the world today. But the shepherd, after this search, finds the sheep, and he doesn't do what some of us would be tempted to do. What were you thinking? Do you know how dumb it is for you to do this, how dangerous it is out here? You deserve this. I hope you've been scared. No, he doesn't do any of that. The Bible says he, he picks the sheep up. He doesn't even make the sheep walk back. He picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and carries it back to the fold. Earthly story, heavenly meaning. You have that wayward child. Doesn't matter how low they sink. When God finds them, which really is when they surrender to God, God's not going to scold them. He's not going to fuss at them. <laughs> He's going to put them on His shoulders and welcome them into His fold and to love them forever. In fact, the psalmist, we know Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd, written by David, the shepherd. But Psalm 28 is also written by David. And he says, be our shepherd and carry us forever. You know, the truth is, Jesus bore the weight of our sin on the cross but he bears the weight of us every day on his shoulders. He's been carrying you since the day you said yes to him. The only difference between the lost and the found is the found acknowledged that they were lost. They understood and admitted, I'm lost. And that's all it took for Jesus to pick us up and put, place us on his shoulder. Praise him for his grace. Amen. Amen. Verse 6 continues the story. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and together and says, rejoice with me, I've found my sheep. This, as much as I've studied this, this seems silly to me. Forgive me, and I, I wasn't there, I didn't live in that culture, but it seems silly that I have a hundred sheep and one goes away. It seems silly that even the neighbors would know. But the Bible says that when he got home after rejoicing privately, that wasn't enough. He has to call his neighbors and his friends and he wants them to rejoice with him. Hey, 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 Rod, hey, man, get to the house. What's up? Wait, man, you, you know that sheep that I lost? Um, uh, I guess, yeah, maybe. Dude, I found it. Oh, that's cool. Well, no, 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 come over, man, we're having a party. You're having a party? For your lost, yeah, yeah, okay, I guess I'll be right over. But that sounds silly, right? But here's, here's why. The reason he included that, the whole point of the parable, is verse 7 that reads, I tell you that in the same way, he paints this picture of rejoicing. I'm calling my neighbors, I'm calling my friends. you got to celebrate with me. I found this lost sheep. In the same way, there will be more rejoicing. Tell your neighbor, more rejoicing. More rejoicing in heaven. That crazy, silly example of calling my neighbors and friends to celebrate this sheep, that's not enough. He says there's more rejoicing over one sinner who repents. It, it just paints this picture, and forgive me if I'm wrong, and forgive me if this offends you, but, but, but the, the band of, of heaven, the Manny, the worship leader, he's always on guard, ready. The, the production team is always ready. 
And when a sinner repents, they strike up the band and they start having a party. And I suppose there is this ever-present, everlasting party. And so, you know what? This gives me a picture of God that I haven't always had. I've, I've had this picture of God sort of in the throne room, sitting in this giant throne, looking stern and leader-like, and sort of everyone standing on trial. And you have to approach Him this way. But no, this paints the picture. Jesus telling the story, fully God, fully man. There's a party in heaven when the lost are found. In the same way, that's crazy, but there's more rejoicing in heaven. That's crazy to me. I looked it up. There are currently over 7.9 billion people on planet Earth. We're fast approaching 8 billion. I think we're just several weeks or maybe a couple of months away. 8 billion people. What I love about God is He sees each one. He sees each one as one. He never... The, the psalmist said that the earth is His footstool. He's never... has his feet on the earth and looks down and surveys and sees 8 billion people. That's not the way God sees us. He sees each one. He sees one person 8 billion times. Real Life Church is an impactful church. I'm so thankful for your generosity and your faithfulness. You allow us to do so many great things for God, for His kingdom, for our community and communities around the world. Because of your faithfulness, we're able to support so many missionaries in different parts of the world who are having an impact with the gospel right there where they live in their communities. We're able to support organizations right here in Las Cruces and surrounding that are having such an impact in our backyards. We're able to support outreach ministries like Souls for Souls and the Loaves and Fish where we impact dozens and hundreds of people around here. We minister to so many every week on Sunday morning in our services here and in so many others throughout the week and different things that happen. In any given year, you impact hundreds and thousands of lives, including dozens that pledge their faith in Christ for the first time. Thank you, Real Life Church. But the beautiful thing is, in God's eyes, it's never dozens or hundreds or thousands. It's one. And one, and one, and one. He doesn't count by dozens, or hundreds, or thousands, or millions, or billions. He counts by one. Does that matter? It matters when you're the one. It matters when you're the parent of the one. You don't want him surveying the landscape and saying, we're doing okay. And your child is down there in the crowd. Your child is one of the many, and God says, we're doing okay. You're glad, you're thankful that God counts by one. He died to save humanity. The billions who've lived before us, and should He tarry His coming, perhaps billions who live after us. But He doesn't count that way. The truth is, He died for one billions of times over. St. Augustine wrote that God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. You know, the church often gets criticized for counting attendance. Just so you know, yes, we do that here. We're one of those. We count and keep up with all sorts of statistics, quite frankly. And there are various reasons that we do so. It helps us know whether certain strategies might be working or not. It helps us know what resources we're going to need for an upcoming event. It, it, It helps Denise to know how much we need next week for Father's Day. 
are all sorts of reasons that we keep up with these statistics. And it's all part of really stewarding what God has blessed us with as we pursue His mission for the church. But I want you to understand something about our counting. We understand that every number has a name. The thousand people or so plus that attended Easter service is this last year. Every one of those has a first and a last name. And thankfully, we know most of those first and last names. We also understand that every name has a story. Every name is living a unique life. Every name is someone created by God, created to do good works that He established for them long ago. We know that about every name. And most importantly, we know and believe that every story matters to God. You may be here, you may be watching online, you may feel marginalized. You may feel like your story no longer matters. You may feel ignored in the world. Or worse yet, you may feel like the tax collectors and the sinners in this parable. You may feel despised. Maybe your story has distanced you from people that you used to call your friends. Maybe you've been shamed by your story. Maybe your story has sim simply been placed on a shelf and you feel ignored. But can I tell you, God knows your story. God knows every part of your story, every chapter, every sentence, every line, every moment. He knows your story. So much so that He's willing to leave the 99 and to pursue you until, until you are found. Parents, God knows our children's stories. Their stories matter to Him. Husbands, wives, your spouses, stories matter. Everybody's story matters. Let me give two quick applications from this parable. Number one, everyone is loved, but the lost must be our priority. I love you all. Moms know this better than most. Mom, if you're at the market on Saturday, just enjoying the downtown and all of the vendors. And let's say you have three children and one suddenly goes missing. They've wandered away. Nothing else matters to you in that moment than that child. It doesn't matter if little Johnny is thirsty. He wants an horchata. doesn't matter if little Susie's hungry. doesn't matter if one of them or both of them is about to wet their pants and they're desperate for a bathroom. You don't really care in that moment. And, you're, and you don't even care who's around you. If you had any cool before, you have none now. You're recruiting every person with an earshot. My baby's lost. Time out. Market. Right? Find my child. Everyone is loved, but the lost are the priority. I love this worship team. They put in countless hours to do what they do for us every week. I love the production team. You have to have thick skin to serve on a production team at a church. Let me just warn you. If you don't want to hear every gripe that you all and we all have about what happens on Sunday, stay out of that booth. Okay? They hear it all. I love those folks. I love everybody that's giving of themselves for kids' ministry right now. Changing diapers and wiping noses so that we can be in here worshiping as adults and so more importantly, they can make a difference in the next generation. I love our security team that gives of their Sunday to keep us all safe so that we can worship and not even think about what might be happening around us. If we told you all of the stories, I, I shouldn't even have said that. That's too much of telling you the story. I love those folks. I love our host team. Good day, bad day, good week, bad week. They come in here and they put a smile on all to make everyone feel welcome and loved. I love you all. 
But the truth is, most of what we do is never about you. It's about the one. And if you've been a part of the church as long as I have, you forget what it felt like to be the one. We've been a part of the 99 for so long, and the 99 is comfortable. I mean, we're in the community of the 99. This is a good place. This is a safe place. This feels nice. But the shepherd says, I got, I got to go pursue the one. How long, shepherd? Until? Until what? Until he's found? What do you mean? Until. The lost are the priority. And number two, no one is ever forgotten in the audience of heaven. 99 out of 100 ain't bad where I come from. You know, those are pretty good odds. Those are pretty good numbers. How many of you would have loved to have had a few more 99s in your school days? Yeah. Anybody here would have loved to have had one 99 back in your school days, huh? Yeah. Your mama would have rejoiced, right? I mean, who, who in the world isn't satisfied, isn't content, isn't happy with 99 out of 100? I'll tell you who. Jesus. Those odds aren't good enough for Jesus. 100 out of 100. Why? It's his creation. Peter tells us that God says he would that no man perish, but that all come to everlasting life. That's his mission. That's why he came. That's why he gave of himself, allowed them to torture him because he loves every one and you know what, if you're the one, if you're watching, and you would say, Roy, I'm one of those ones, the enemy of your soul wants you to feel abandoned. He wants you to believe that you're the one who got away. He wants you to believe that the shepherd is no longer in pursuit of you, but I'm here to tell you, he will pursue you until he will not give up. He sees you, he loves you, he's searching for you. And all of heaven is waiting to rejoice. <laughs> the band is ready. Manny in heaven is ready. Okay, guys, get ready. Somebody, I feel it. I believe it's about to happen. We're, and I don't know, maybe there's a band member up there that says, dude, we just got through. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. Strike it up. The Bible is filled with real stories, real experiences of Jesus that paint this or that illustrate this beautiful picture of God. I guess my favorite is found in Luke 8. I'm not going to read it. It's a bit, bit too long for that. It's found in Luke 8, beginning with verse 22, if you want to go read it later. But the story starts. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. Now, if you know the Bible at all, this is the story when they're out on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and, the, and a fierce storm arises, the storm that scared the disciples to death, right? And Jesus, uh, being Jesus, he's napping. He's taking a nap in the boat because he said, let's cross to the other side. That, that's a different sermon. But the disciples are scared. They wake him up. He calms the storm. They're like, whoa, whoa, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? It's this story, okay? The Bible says that when they reached the other side, that they were met by this one crazed, demon-possessed madman who would have been in chains, but he kept snapping the chains. He was an outcast. Society had banished him. He lived for a long time, the Bible said, naked and among the tombs outside of town. This man, this crazed man, meets Jesus and the disciples. 
long story short, Jesus commands the demons to come out of the man, and the man is made well, and the Bible says he, he, was, he was perfectly sane. Well, I don't get this, but that kind of demonstration of power scared the people of that region who, who heard the commotion, and they started gathering. They saw this, this madman that they had chained over and over. He's perfectly sane, and it scared them, and they asked Jesus to leave. I think, how, how much did they miss out on by asking him to leave? But the Bible says, so Jesus returned to the boat and left crossing back to the other side of the lake. And of course, the man that was healed begged Jesus to go with him, but Jesus said, no, you stay here, go tell your family what God did for you. What I love about that story is that Jesus, being fully God, fully man, being omniscient, knows all things, he knew the story as it would be written before it ever happened. He knew that they would get on into the open water and a storm would arise. He knew his disciples would be scared. He knew more importantly that when he reached the other side that there would be one ministry opportunity. And then he would get back into the boat and cross the lake. I've had the privilege of touring the Holy Land and I've crossed the Sea of Galilee and we used a motorized boat. And it took us about an hour. It's not a pond. These guys had to row across that water. There was one madman that society said didn't matter. He belongs among the tombs. You're not welcome in our village any longer. Chain him. He snapped the chains. Chain him again. He snapped them. Chain him again. His story no longer mattered to them, but his story mattered to God. His story mattered to Jesus enough that he would say, Disciples, let's go to the other side knowing there's a guy over there there's one over there i'm i need to leave the 99 and go rescue this one his story mattered because everyone's story matters your story matters are you thankful that we serve a god who who counts by ones amen